Thank you very much. It's been good to be with you. You've been a graciously responsive group, and it's helped me. So thank you so much. Let's pray and ask God's help one more time. Future grace for another hour and a half, Lord, is what we ask. Grace to live, breathe, think clearly, have our hearts inclined to the Bible and not to exaltation of any person. Words that are appointed for needs that we don't even know exist. And a freedom from sin. Now, we want to be freed from sins and walk in the light and be holy, righteous, Christ-like, God-exalting people. So, grant, I pray, that not only the dynamics of living by faith in future grace would be understood, but that the event of holiness through faith would happen and we would walk out more pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And nothing draws us on like the hope of seeing you. Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory was the final request. There was no higher request after that. And so purity to the end of seeing, seeing to the end of purity, a never-ending spiral of more of you and more purity and joy and holiness forever. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with covetousness. These little vignettes that I'm going to give you now are all taken from the application parts of the book. There are eight application chapters scattered throughout Future Grace. So if we are light on these, you can go back and get the full treatment in the book someday if you want to. Covetousness. What is it, first of all? It's the last of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. In Colossians 3, 5, it's called idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Which means that it's also the first of the Ten Commandments. Well, if you've ever thought that the first and last of the Ten Commandments is the same commandment. Don't have any other gods before me and don't covet are the same commandment, according to Colossians 3.5. Colossians 3.5, covetousness is idolatry. So don't covet and don't have other gods is the same commandment. The commandments begin and end with be so satisfied in me and let your allegiance to me be so completely all-consuming that there are no competitors in your life. That's the meaning of the law. That's the meaning of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love your neighbor by being satisfied in me. 
So here's my definition of, of covetousness. Desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. It's okay to want to eat. It's okay to want to have sex with your wife. It's okay to want to be healthy. But it's not okay to want any of those to a degree that it puts you out of contentment with God. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. The opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. A peaceful, restful satisfaction in God is the opposite of covetousness. Covetousness is that stewing inside that you want something, and since you can't get it, you're miserable. Might be a spouse, might be health, might be a new job or a job, and it destroys your contentment, destroys your ability to walk through the day with a sweet, quiet, contented spirit. So, the battle is, where does contentment or the opposite of covetousness come from? How do you slay the dragon of covetousness, sever the root of it, and how do you embrace contentment? My answer, generically, for all these is, live by faith in future grace. So now, where in the Bible, this is the way my mind works about living the Christian life, where in the Bible can I go... To find some description of future grace that when I embrace it and believe it will destroy covetousness in my life. And the answer, and there are more than one, is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. You know this one, don't you? We have a fighter verse system at our church where everybody memorizes the same verse every week and we try to learn about 50 verses a year. And this one says, be content with what you have. That's the opposite of covetousness. Now, here comes the foundation of that marvel. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, there's the argument. Living the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, is not a mindless affair. If it were a mindless affair, this would be redundant. This is a book. This is a book. One must go to school or have good parents to make any sense out of those black marks on this page. And one must go to a little bit of a higher education to make consistent meaning out of all these pages. Now, you may not have liked the fact that God did it with a book. A lot of people are resentful of that. When you tell them there's a correlation between reading and study and spiritual intensity and growth, they don't like that. 
That sounds too intellectualistic and uh, just give me just give me an experience. Sorry. He did it with a book. He did it with a book. You try to lay this book aside and live off experiences, you'll have them. <laughs> and you'll be sorry in the end. So when you want to get rid of covetousness, you don't just say, do it, spirit. You don't do that only. Of course, it's the spirit who's going to do it. But he gave you a book with a command. Be content with reasons. What are you supposed to do with those reasons? We don't need reasons. We got the spirit. The spirit said, I gave you the reasons. I wrote this book. Listen to me. I'm talking to you here. This is the Holy Spirit talking. Listen to me. I said, be content for God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Put your faith in that promise. And that's the channel along which I, the Holy Spirit, take away your covetousness. It feels very much like you are doing this. I open my Bible, I read the command, I see the argumentation, and then I get the connection, and, and this is all grace, I embrace it, I believe it, and I define faith as a being satisfied with all that God is for us. And one of the things he is for us is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, you can confidently say, the Lord is my Helper. So here I am covetous for a spouse, or here I am covetous for a job, or here I am covetous for a new car. It always breaks down. And I'm seething inside because I'm not content. And you come to this word from the Holy Spirit, and it says, He'll never leave you, He'll never forsake you, and in this, He will help you. He will help you. Be content. Do you trust me? That's the issue. The issue of the Christian life over and over and over is do you trust him? Do you trust his promises? There are many warnings. I think warnings are a gracious gift to send us back to the promises. There are many warnings about the danger of covetousness. Beware of covetousness. Your life does not consist in the things that you have. Luke 12, 15. The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word. Mark 4, 19. That little phrase, desire for other things chokes the word. So don't desire them. That is, don't be covetous. And the, and the warning sobers us and sends us to the promises. 1 Timothy 6.10 The love of money is the root of all evils. So don't love it. You will pierce your heart with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6, 9. 
It destroys the soul. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into foolish lusts which lead to destruction. Don't desire to be rich. It is suicide. Another warning. Gracious warning not to want to be rich. First Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into this world. We will take nothing out of this world. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. So in the West, like America and England, where we live in palaces, the poorest person in Minneapolis lives in a palace compared to about 800 million people. We need to hear a warning because many of us think we're poor when we're filthy rich and bent on being richer. More, more, more things we want. So let NFI stand for a wartime simplicity. We are at war in the world. Most Christians do not believe we're at war. They believe we're at peace. So they live a peacetime lifestyle instead of a wartime lifestyle. Some of you, not many, are old enough to have lived through World War II in this country. Believe me, it was different. You didn't get new tires in America during World War II. The rubber went for the cause. They made things out of different things. Your lifestyle changed because of war. We're in a war. And people are dropping into eternity, about 50,000 of them a minute maybe. To live a peacetime lifestyle is to just say we don't believe it. We don't believe in hell. Or we don't love people. Oh, we don't think we can make a difference no matter how we live. Ralph Winter, the great mission statesman, loves to tell the story of the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary, which is parked in Southern California Harbor, huge, three football fields long, was conscripted for the cause during World War II. It was a great luxury ocean liner, and it was conscripted by the Army. And where there... You can walk into the museum now, in the Queen Mary, and see a room divided in half. And on this side of the room is what it looked like during World War II, and on this side of the room is what it looked like as a luxury liner. And over here, there are bunks beside each other, and over here, there are bunks three tall, on top of each other, beside each other. Over here, there's place settings with who knows how many forks and spoons, dishes, and over here, there's a tin pan and a cup, and it carried 18,000 troops, and it carried 3,000 luxury liner people. And he held it up, he said, here's a wartime lifestyle, and here's a luxury lifestyle. And I'm not here to tell you what your lifestyle should be in detail, but I am here to say that the danger of loving money, and loving leisure, and loving comfort in the West is about the biggest danger there is. 
probably bigger than sex, probably bigger than drink, probably bigger than drugs. Jesus addressed more about money than he did anything. The kingdom and then money. So it's huge. Don't be covetous. Believe in future grace instead. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Let's go to anxiety. They're almost the same. Anxiety is penetrating all these things, but let's, Jesus addresses the issue of anxiety. And anxiety is a sin. And it leads to sins, many sins, most sins. I want to put together two texts for you that came together in our church with really quite a thunderclap of significance for our people in Matthew and Lamentations. Because most people had not put these texts together. Lamentations 3 and Matthew 6. Matthew 6.34, at the end of this paragraph on don't be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or drink. Remember that one? And when they had it, he said, oh, ye of little faith. So faith is the issue in anxiety. In verse 34 of Matthew 6, it says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So he gives a command and then he gives a reason. So you should read this. Use your brain. And there's a logical connecting word for because I mean, the Holy Spirit, in inspiring these words, assumes that logic will change your life. Because he uses logical connecting words between his commands and his reasons. Don't be anxious about tomorrow because, now that because should have powerful spiritual effect in your life. And if it doesn't, you need to ask for the spiritual gift of reading. There's something wrong with your brain. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. That should help you. I suppose to help you. Not be anxious. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Hmm. Are you helped? <laughs> Feeling less anxious right now? Because of that argument? You're supposed to be. So we got to understand it. That's why study is important for spiritual life and transformed hearts. For... Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. I take that to mean that God has apportioned a certain amount of trouble for each day. <laughs> and each day has its quantity and you're not supposed to pile it up. You're supposed to spread it out. That's exactly what it says. Let the day's own trouble. So th there's some trouble for today. Let that be enough. Don't stockpile tomorrow's trouble into today. Now, I know this is I wrote a little paper on this and I said, I, I asked my teacher in the paper, I said. If it's eleven fifty nine 
at night. When, when is today's trouble stop and tomorrow start? I, I made trouble for a lot of teachers. I, and that, that is a troubling thought to me. When, when, when does tomorrow start? If you work at night and you don't sleep through the transition. And there's no answer to that question. There, there must be a principle here. Not, not a, a, a quantification by hours. Here's a 24-hour period with, and here's another 24-hour period. But it must be something about the now. There's a trouble for you, and later there'll be a trouble for you. And don't stockpile it into one place. Now, why? He doesn't answer that here. He answers that in Lamentations. This is real familiar. You, you all know this hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Starting at verse 22 of Lamentations 3, which is an absolutely staggering set of verses in the middle of this horrendous book of pain and lamentation. Because here's, here's, here's Jerusalem under judgment and siege so bad that they're eating their children. It's bad. And if there ever was a time when you should reject God, it's when you're boiling your children. So this is not light. This is heavy. And in the middle of this book, which is the most crafted book in the Bible, you know it's an, it's a, uh, um, help me, what's the word? Acrostic. It's an acrostic. The whole book is. Every paragraph begins with a different Hebrew letter. So this, this pain that's being experienced here was forced into the channel of an acrostic. This is one warrant, by the way, for Songwriting and poem writing with some sense of excellence and and form. You know, some people say, oh, when the spirit's moving, you just write what he gives you. You don't think about rhyme or meter or whether you have to cram 18 syllables into one note. (laughs) You just let it flow. Well, look. I think the Holy Spirit created Bezalels and artists who in the most intense emotional experience of pain labored to say it beautifully and well so that it can be shared by a big group, not just one isolated person having an experience with God. If you're going to write songs, and, and I know you're a songwriting congregation, write them well so that we can sing them too. And, and you're doing that. <laughs> Verse 22, chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Here it is. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Why? Because trouble is new every morning. You see the connection? When we saw that as a congregation, it was as though lights went on for everybody. That 
all the pain, all the trouble that God has in his sovereign providence spread out over your life. A lot still to come, a lot's past. He spread it out in perfect correlation with mercies designed to help you with it. So when you get up tomorrow or when you get home and you find something has not at all what you expect it was going to be, there's more trouble. Think every day's trouble. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Every day's trouble has a new mercy appointed for it. And therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's troubles are designed by God to fit tomorrow's mercies. Or maybe that's the backwards way to say it. Tomorrow's mercies are designed by God to fit tomorrow's troubles. And they will be there. It will be there. You will not be tested beyond what you are able. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Peter 4, 17. Somewhere in there. It talks about when you suffer... And right up to death, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think the implication of that is that there's a dying grace. You fear sometimes, could I endure the torture that a Richard Vermbrandt did? Or will I be faithful to the very end of my life? Or what if I get a terrible disease like Patty Larson? Or what if I have to endure persecution? Will I be able to endure it? And the answer to that is not with today's grace. Not with today's grace. Therefore, don't let the panic of this afternoon determine your faith about tomorrow. Tomorrow's grace, future grace, is for tomorrow's troubles. What's her name? Um, Corrie Ten Boom. Remember that story about the train? When she wondered if she'd be able to endure the suffering and her father said, now when are you going to take a train up to Amsterdam? When does your daddy give you the ticket? Well, when I get on the train, not three weeks before. Why? Well, you'll lose it. So when you have to get onto the death camp train, God will get on the train. The mercy will be there. But not today. You don't have a grace today to suffer for Jesus in some persecution camp. But you will. You will. If you keep on trusting in future grace. It is perfectly designed. For the trouble that God will permit. In your life. There's an old Swedish hymn. I don't know if, if you ever sing this. I, I, uh, I commend it to you. That you learn it as a church. And put it to a new tune maybe. It goes like this. Uh, Every day and with each passing moment. Strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my father's wise bestowment. I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil. With peace and rest. Giving to each day its part of pain and pleasure from his loving hand. You gotta believe that is loving 
or you will be an anxious person. You'll just be so anxious whether God's going to let too much suffering or too much privation come into your life tomorrow that you won't be able to stand it. And then anxiety feeds off of that uncertainty. But if you take the word, the promise of future grace or future mercy, then you can rest content. Now, what you have to do practically, I believe, this is the way, I don't know how you do devotions in the morning or private time, quiet time, whatever, but I believe everybody needs to do these things. Morning, noon, evening, wherever. It's got to be done. It's got to be done daily, I believe. The way you do it is by ransacking the Bible for promises of future grace that correlate to the troubles you, you know are coming. Now, you can't do it for the ones you don't know are coming, but for the ones you know are coming, you can ransack the Bible for promises that are tailor-made for that challenge to your faith. Let me give you some examples. If you fear lacking, going without, then you go to Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you believe that promise of future grace and therefore you sever the root of anxiety about whether you'll have enough for your needs. If you worry about being useless in the ministry, Isaiah 55, 11, my word will not come back to me empty. Sow it, sow it, believe me, trust me, nothing done in the name of Jesus through the word of Jesus is done in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if you fear weakness, you go to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And you believe it. And you sever the root of anxiety about weakness. If you are worried or anxious about decisions you have to make, I don't know which to do, right or left. You go to Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Or you go to Psalm 25, 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And you believe him. He doesn't lie. You trust in future grace. If you fear opponents in your life, there are enemies, people slandering you, ready to do you in in some way. You trust Romans 8.31. If God is for us, nobody can successfully be against us. If you worry about affliction, you go to Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not from them all. <laughs> out of them all. Or Romans 5, 3. Rejoice in tribulation. Because tribulation works patience. And patience experience. And experience hope. And hope doesn't make you ashamed. Believe that. And know that God's going to work good things for you in it. And do away with that worry. Do you worry about getting old? Do some of you women worry about what's going to happen to your looks when the wrinkles come and whether anybody or even your husband will be attracted to you anymore or whether you'll get arthritis or whether your mind will go too quickly and start doing stupid things by your forgetfulness and people will have to treat you like a little child. Do you worry about that? If you do, 
You should go to Isaiah 46, 4. Even to old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry you and I will save. I love getting old with that verse. Thin hair on top. I see pictures taken of me while I'm preaching. It's just big glare right off the top of my head here. And, and wrinkles and trifocals now. And... When I get out of bed, I have to do little stretches because back and I'm just going I'm dying. It says in the Bible, this moral nature is wasting away in Second Corinthians four. Do you worry about that? If you worry about it, find a promise, find a promise that says God loves gray hair and no hair. I don't know if that's in the Bible, but there was a bald prophet and God sent bears to eat up children who mocked him. There's one. (laughs) Or lastly, just do you fear dying? Are you afraid of dying? R.C. Sproul, reformed teacher in America, says, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. Especially if you watch a few people die like Patty. And then the answer is what I told you this morning and. Romans 14, 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ lived and died and rose again that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. I will not fear. And you fight with the word. Why does. Why does Ephesians 6 call the Bible? The sword of the spirit. It's because of this. Out of here, anxiety. And every time anxiety rears its head, you you lop it off with the Bible, with promises. That's enough on anxiety. Let's go to lust. Let's not go to lust. Now, here you have, um, I'm talking sexual lust here. The uh, short of adultery and fornication, what you do with your mind in the process of feeding on pornography or fantasies. There are warnings. Remember, I said that warnings are a gift of grace to send us away from sin to promises. And thus they are so merciful when the Bible gives us warnings. <laughs> Who's got a copy of Future Grace nearby? Somebody nearby can hand me a copy. I got to read you something. I didn't have it in my notes. Let's see if the British edition has it on the same page. I think this is. It's on page uh, 329. I just This is amazing to me. I read this in the newspaper several years ago. On July 20th, 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing land near Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, as part of his work for a mining company. In the process, a tree rolled over on his shin, causing a severe break and pinning Wyman to the ground. He cried for help for an hour, and no one came. He concluded that the only way to save his life would be to cut off his leg. 
So he made a tourniquet out of a shoestring and tightened it with a wrench. Then he took his pocket knife and cut through the skin and muscle and bone just below the knee and freed himself from the tree. He crawled 30 yards to a bulldozer, drove a quarter of a mile to his truck, then maneuvered the standard transmission with his good leg and a hand until he reached a farmer's house one and a half miles away with his leg bleeding profusely. Farmer John Huber Jr. helped him get to a hospital where his life was spared. So when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That story shows what you will do when something you value is about to be lost. Namely your life. And Jesus says the value that is about to be lost when you give away yourself to lust is your life. Better to enter life maimed than to go to hell with two good eyes, lusting. That's the kind of warning you read. First, that was, that was Matthew 5, 28 and 29. First Peter 2, 11. There are lusts that wage war against your soul, it says. First Peter 2, 11. Luke 8, 14. The word is choked off by the pleasures of life. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body means put to death lust, among other things. And you do it by the spirit. And I would unpack that by saying by the sword of the spirit. Reliance upon the Spirit's power and the use of the Spirit's sword to run through Satan's lies about lust. It's not a big deal. You're not a Puritan Victorian type. You're a free American. And Galatians said, for freedom, Christ has set you free. He kind of quietly pushes aside. Don't let your freedom be an occasion for the flesh. So there are many warnings, but the most powerful and positive thing are not the warnings, but the promises. Let's go to Second Peter, if you want to look at it with me. Second Peter chapter one is an amazing statement of the power of faith and future grace with regard to the corruption of lust. Start at verse 3 in chapter 1. Read two verses. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So notice, first of all, that the power that pertains to godliness is mediated through knowledge. 
That's what I'm arguing here about reading. It's a book. It's got logical connectors in it. Knowledge is the mediating agent of divine power for godliness. So you got to know some things. And the more you know about what God has revealed about himself and his promises, the more power you're going to have. Verse 4. By which, that is, by which glory and excellence, he has granted to us precious and very great promises. So now this is future grace. I could say, by which he has granted to us precious and very great future grace. Assurances of future grace. In order that, one of those really important logical connectors, in order that through these, that is these promises, you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust or passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Now that's a complex sentence. And it is so rich. It's worth an hour's meditation on all the words and all the connections and how it all fits together to deliver us from ungodliness. But you can see what the bottom line is. The aim here is to help us escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion or lust. So how do you escape from lust? Some of you are in bondage to it. Some of you go to X and R-rated movies, or however you rate them here in this country, regularly. Some of you do it by justifying it that you're a pastor and you need to be in touch with culture. Some of you go onto the internet, wife is downstairs doing something else, and you just hit the button. And there she is. You can even do stuff with her. She can talk to you now. You just do that. You're in bondage to this. You feel rotten when you're done and you do it the next day. Others of you buy stuff. And some of you women are hooked on the kinds of romances where the real stuff happens that isn't happening at home so bad. How do you break free? I assume you want to be free. How do you get free? It says, He has granted to us precious and very great promises that through these you may escape. Don't over-spiritualize this. God can do it by knocking you to the floor and you get up never desiring pornography again. He can. That's not what the Bible says he usually does. The normal way he does it is by promises. Very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world through lust and become partakers of God. So I take this to mean... That the divine power referred to in verse 3, just like we saw in Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of law or by hearing this, verse 4, with faith? And the answer is the spirit moves through faith. 
So the battle this afternoon and tonight will be when the temptation comes, are you willing to ransack the Bible for promises that are so superior in the satisfaction that they bring that the powerful root of lust is severed? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to begin that battle right now? Are you willing to resolve right now as I talk, I'm going to do that? Or does it have such a hold on you right now that you, like a mistress, you can't let her go? Not even right now. And if that's the case, perhaps all you can do is cry, open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may be things so that I will be drawn to your word. Because right now, I love lust more than I love the Bible. There are promises that are superior. There was a, there's a magazine in America called Leadership Magazine. It's for church leaders, published by Christianity Today. When it was first published, about 18 years ago, one of the first articles that appeared was an article called The Anatomy of Lust, unsigned. And it was the story of a pastor who for 12 years was living lustfully. He preached. He did seminars like this. And in the afternoons, like when I'm done today at 4.30 or 4, he would quietly disappear and go to the district. He never, he never got in bed with anybody. He just did more and more gross things right up to live, nude, interactive stuff. And he was a pastor. And he was writing this article of how he got free. Since then, about 10 years later, he's written a subsequent article. And now it's a book. You can get it as a book. And the book's still unsigned. Um, which is probably wise. Um, that's too heavy to just lay on your church. You need to lay it on your elders, maybe. But um, here's the way he described his experience of freedom. He said, I, "I had cried out often, and nothing had happened." He got a hold of a novel by Francois Mariette. I think it was "The Red and the Black," and in it there is a scene in which purity of heart is described in such magnificent, compelling beauty that he felt overwhelmed at what he had been missing. And the text in the Bible that exploded with power was, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that broke it. The hope of having what he was missing, namely a pure heart that would see and know all that God could give to him. In my own struggles, it isn't so much the negative, don't, don't, don't think that way or whatever. It is the having experienced and seen enough of God to know that if I continue in this path, this low road Ugly, low path. I'm going to lose it. 
I'm not going to be able to see sunrises. I'm not going to be able to look in my wife's eyes. I'm not going to be able to embrace my little daughter. I'm going to be filthy and lose so much of beauty and of glory and of good and maybe eternal life. And it's the positive missing and the resting in and the being satisfied with what God will be for me in Jesus that breaks the power of lust. So very practically, let's tell you how I do this. And I'm 52 now and, and I'm pretty experienced at this. And have relatively high success at it. Here's the, here's the way a man, a man works. I do, I've never been a woman. <laughs> and so I will not presume to say how it works for women. But my guess is, uh, if women are honest, they know they have similar kinds of things and have to find similar strategies. We were watching a soccer game last week in a little half-hour window. That's football. A uh, little half-hour window up at Caster between, I can't pronounce the words, but Spain and England. Is there, was there a game last week? Chelsea. Chelsea. That's the word. <laughs> Who were they playing? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to the point. Okay. Well, a woman ran onto the field totally nude. Now, they didn't show it until they got the coat around her. And then this cameraman thought he'd be cool. And as she walks off, he swings down onto this. And just part of her rear end was exposed. That is still in my mind. I don't go to movies like that. I won't go to see Titanic. I will not go where there's nudity if I know about it ahead of time. Stick in a parenthesis here. Related. You can give me as much violence as you want and I'll watch it. Give me one millimeter of nudity and I won't. And if you say, why? That seems like a skewed value system. Simple reason. All the violence is fake. All the nudity is somebody's daughter really taking off her clothes in front of the cameraman and millions of people. The former is fake. The latter is wicked. There's a big difference. Fake violence does not bother me. Go ahead. Give me Henry V or Braveheart. Except I didn't know there was that one scene in Braveheart. <laughs> and I won't go back. Very simple reason. My male brain is wired so that when that pushes on it, it's there for months. As a teenager, the first playboy I found in a laundromat is emblazoned on my brain. Forty years later, every square inch of it. I don't know what you do if you regularly do this. I don't know how you, how you can preach or how you can do anything spiritual if you feed on this week in and week out. So, at that moment, 
there she went, and the jacket was just a little high, and I thought, wow, if he'd swung the camera down there earlier, and then the fantasy starts to go. And what did she do while she was out there? And did she jump on one of those guys? And what? Now, I don't, I don't usually get that far. That took about 10 seconds. I don't give myself 10 seconds. I used to. I'm more successful now than I was at age 20. But now, I've got the sword in my hand almost immediately. And I am ruthless with these things. I, if Noel's not in the room or anybody around, I'll say, no! Maybe not that loud in a hotel room. <laughs> I'm talking to Satan. I'm talking to my flesh. I'm talking to sin. And I'll say, no! Because my ministry hangs on this. My power hangs on this. My anointing hangs on this. My family hangs on this. My fathering hangs on this. I say, no! Maybe my eternity hangs on this. But now here's the second thing I do about a second later. I shift my mind into an immediate positive gear. Usually the cross. I've got to get to something beautiful. I've got to get to something precious. I, you, the mind will not tolerate a void, especially a void created by the eviction of lust. It will be back there in a minute. It's like, don't think of white elephants. 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 And all you do then is think of white elephants. Keep her out, keep her out, keep her out, keep her out. And there she is every time you say it. So you can't do it that way. You have to say no decisively. I will not pursue the fantasy. I will not keep the TV on. I will not turn another page. I will not go into this theater. But that's not enough. That's not enough. No triumph is going to happen that way. You have to now fill it with promises. He has given precious and very great promises that we may escape. And so you... Pour promises into your mind about how precious Christ is. Or you picture the suffering of Christ on the cross and his gasping and heaving and his torn back going up and down on the cross and his wrist shredding and the sword pierced up under his ribs and his blood in his face and his screaming that I might be pure. That's the way I fight. I think that's what he meant by gouging out your eye. Some people enter the kingdom violently. They're cutting off their hands and gouging out their eyes. You, you know, it must mean something like that because it says, if your right eye offend you, gouge it out. Which is of no use whatsoever if you have your left eye left. So when he says, gouge out your right eye... And you've got your left eye to keep looking. You've missed the point. The point is, do what you got to do to be free. And the key is the positive trust or faith in future grace. Things like uh, Psalm 84, 10 and 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing. Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Won't that carry you through a battle with lust? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly and turn it off. You will be repaid 10,000 fold 
for turning it off. Let's talk about impatience. That's kind of abrupt, isn't it? Should I stop and take a question or two there? Go ahead. I'll just see if there's something burning real quick before we move to impatience. Right in the way back. Yeah. Amen. Amen. What about the principles of accountability, prayer, confession to one another, as well as what I've just said? Amen. I, uh, I, I totally agree that if I had a man who came to me in my study, laid out his bondage, and I preached to him these things, and we've talked about them, and he goes back, and he keeps coming back and says, it doesn't work. I wouldn't have waited that long, but a next step or a step alongside would be, look, you got to get in a group with some other guys who are sharing your burden, and let's make some covenants with one another, and let's pray for each other, and let's call each other on the phone. Let's have a hot hotline number here so that when you are feeling drawn to that secretary, you just punch that button and call and say, I'm feeling it, and they all pray for you. Amen. Because... We, even though the effectual agent of the liberty is the truth of God, according to 2 Peter 1.4, the booster behind the promises is the power of God that's unleashed by prayer. So just amen to, to that. That's good. Anything else? You haven't actually mentioned the word repentance, but I perceive you're talking about repentance a lot. Okay. And I wonder... Um, I look out in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11, where Paul is speaking to believers. Right. And he's saying that godly sorrow right. brings repentance that leads to salvation. And I wonder what, uh, would you speak into that, and particularly godly sorrow? The situation in 2 Corinthians there, I think, is that there's been discipline and there's been uh, sin in the life of the church. And Paul has issued the requirement that there be some tough discipline. And it has happened. And it has produced sorrow and turning, repenting, metanoia, change of mind, which leads now to life. There is a, another kind of sorrow that does not produce repentance. And leads to death. And that's just being overwhelmed by guilt or condemnation from others. No genuine grief that you have offended God and man and a perception of the adequacy of grace which embraced leads to repentance and life. So I think the distinction he's drawing there is when two people fall into sin. There are two possible routes you can follow. Both may, may pass through grief, sorrow. One is godly grief and one is ungodly grief. Godly grief leads to the recognition of the sufficiency of grace and the awakening of repentance, the turning and a coming back into sync with God and life. This one is a crushing down and instead of being open to the beauty of grace and the sufficiency of God to forgive, it becomes more deeply uh, resentful at people or God. And though it may weep its eyes out in your study 
There is no correlation to weeping and repentance necessarily. I have seen people weep their eyes out over the misery that sin has brought into their lives, their own sin. And it looks, if you had just taken a movie of that moment, you would have said, this is a broken person. And all they're crying about is the consequences. That's all they're crying about. It's like a criminal who is told life imprisonment and he breaks down and cries, not because he is sorry about sin, but because he's sorry he's losing the freedom to sin. So you can cry and cry and cry and go right into destruction. Now, I don't know if you want more than that or if I'm even getting at what you're asking. Is that? Well, it's really that godly sorrow brings the, can bring the repentance. Yes. If, if I'm not hitting on it, you, you must be making it. Is that? What am I missing? That, we haven't spoken about being sorrowful for your sins. Oh, I have. All right. You should be sorrowful for your sins. <laughs> You're right. I, I just leave some things out and I'm, I'm assuming they're coming between the lines. And I'll tell you, when I don't succeed in my warfare against sin, I feel awful and should feel awful. And if I have the grace, should cry about it. And then that, as you're pointing out, should lead me not to despair, but to repentance. Okay, maybe my excessive focus on joy has clouded that issue. Um, James, I'll pick another verse. James 4. My memory is, be sorrowful, weep, you, what is it? Hebrews, James 4. Be wretched. Mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Yes, amen. There are seasons of failure in the Christian life that make that the command of the hour. Be wretched, mourn, that's James 4, 9. Be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. So that you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. That's the stepping stone through repentance to recovery. We're going to end on impatience here. So let me just say a few things about it. Impatience is a form of unbelief, as are all sins. A form of unbelief in the wisdom and the power and the goodness of God when we have to go at an unplanned pace in an unplanned place. The frustration of having to go slower than you want to go. Or be in a place you don't want to be at a time you don't want to be there can make you seethe with impatience, get angry. Especially if you're a missionary where nothing goes right. Everything breaks. The day's plan never works. The red tape is unbelievable. Takes two weeks to get your water turned on or Get a telephone, take six months in Germany when we were there in 1971. 
Americans are not patient people. Believe me, we want it yesterday and faster. So we need faith in future grace. And the only thing I know to do here is to commend to you faith in God's sovereignty to work out things that you didn't expect for good better than you could have hoped for. A few examples. The story of Joseph from the Bible is written to make you patient. Isn't it? Joseph from chapter 37 to chapter 50. Here he starts. Great triumphalistic dreams of being a ruler. True. Just a little too pushy, though. And his dad and his mom and his brothers are, you're going to rule over us. So he sinks in their esteem. His brothers hate him. And then his father sends him down to his brothers to find out how they're doing on a mission from the father. And they say, ah, let's kill him. They grab him and throw him in a pit. That's bad. That's low. That's He could be impatient at the bottom of that pit. This is not planned. And then they start to draw him up. It says, oh, there's hope. They're drawing me up out of the pit. And they sell him into slavery. Down further. I graphed this one time for my people. I drew a graph of Joseph's life. So we're down here now. He's on his way to Egypt. Well, that's bad. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in Egypt. And he gets there and God is good to him. And he gets a, a good job with Potiphar. Feels like he's rising a little bit. And then this woman frames him and lies about him. And Potiphar throws him in prison (laughs) all the way down. Not quite all the way. Years go by and he wins the approval of the jailer, has some responsibility for the other prisoners. And it feels like there might be some favor happening here in my life for a change. And along comes a butler and a baker, and he tells their dreams. And I always get these guys mixed up. Which one got hanged? The baker? Okay. The baker gets hanged, and the butler is elevated. And Joseph says, remember me. And he totally forgets him (laughs) for two more years. Now we're at the bottom. That took about 17 years. Where are you on the graph? Fifteen years into it, this is, I mean this, some of you in a marriage or a divorce situation or a sickness situation or a, or three prodigal children that are breaking your hearts and you think they can't do anything more to me, they can't hurt me any better, any worse, but they do another crazy thing and you think it can't get any worse. So you, you've, we're all in a graft like this, those periods of our lives that seem like things just don't get any worse. And this story is told to give you hope so that in the midst of that downward spiral of circumstantial misery, you will overcome impatience. And the key verses are chapter 45, verse 7 and chapter 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil. He was elevated to be the vice president of Egypt. Saved his people from starvation. Got a wonderful wife, I presume. Gave birth to children who became heirs of the promise. 
And he said to them when they were scared to death that he would take vengeance on them. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Awesome. God meant those 17 years. God meant the hostility of my brothers. God meant the pit. God meant the selling into slavery. God meant the lousy experience in Potiphar's house. God meant the imprisonment. God meant the being forgotten by the butler. For good? If I had known, I wouldn't have murmured so much. Don't murmur. Philippians 2.15 says, don't murmur. And you'll be like children of God. And lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation if you don't murmur. Or picture this analogy that I made up. Suppose, well, let me give you a real one first. You ever heard of Benjamin Warfield, great old Princeton theologian from about 100 years ago, 80 years ago? Warfield married um, Mary Kincaid as a young man. Annie Kincaid was her name in 1876. Their parents gave them money to take a honeymoon in Switzerland in 1876. While they were skiing, she was struck by lightning and was an invalid in bed the rest of her life. And in 1915, 39 years later, she died. Warfield never went more than two hours from his house. Turned down every denominational post that was offered to him so that he could be near his wife. This was an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. And so when I learned that about Warfield, I didn't know this. I'd only known him as a theologian. I went to get his little book of devotional readings and I looked for what he would write on Romans 8.28. And this is what he wrote. God will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from what befalls us. Now, he didn't write that at the beginning. He wrote it at the end. After 39 years of faithfulness to an invalided wife. That's patience. That's love. And it came from faith in Romans 8.28. Which is the great promise of future grace. I will work all things together for your good. Maybe one last illustration. Um, This one I make up because it helps me. Suppose you're planning... A trip to Switzerland to ski. 30th anniversary or something like that. Maybe it should be the 15th anniversary because. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure I'd want to ski. Just as you're making your final plans, you are crossing an intersection in your car, maybe the day before the airport departure, and a car broadsides you right in the front. 
just smashes you and crushes your left leg. Just compound fractures. Didn't kill you, just compound fractures. Switzerland is history. You're lying there in the hospital. They say, this is really serious. We're going to have to go in there and do some reconstruction. And, but we think we can do it. So they go in there, give you some local anesthesia. And when they're done, the doctor comes around to you and he says, um, I have good news and bad news. And then good news. The good news is your bones are going to be fine and, and we've got you sewed up. The bad news is we found a tumor. Uh, of a pretty aggressive kind in there. And this is very unusual for us to find these before it's too late. But this one is totally new, and we took it all, and there's no reason to think you will not live out a normal life. Now, think back about your murmuring at the accident. Why did this happen? Why do we have to miss our our trip to Switzerland? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Until you learn that God exposed a tumor, which had it not been exposed, you'd be dead in two years. Transforms your whole way of looking at the event. Every single thing that befalls you According to Warfield's understanding of Romans 8.28, is for your good. And if you believe that promise of future grace, you won't commit the sin of grumbling. But you must fight with faith in future grace. It's not easy to believe Romans 8.28. I don't walk into hospital rooms and say, oh, Romans 8.28. I I visited Patty in her dying four times because she lived 45 minutes away. So it was hard. But I went on Christmas Eve and I went the day before I left to go to. Where did we go? We left town. I forget. But anyway, I went four times. Never did I walk in there in some breezy way and say to Glenn Larson, whose 38 year old wife was going to die in a few months. Praise God. Anyhow, brother, God works everything together for good. Praise God, Patty. You can really abuse this truth. But if you have a pastor, and this is, I'll close with this. Just commend all of you to be faithful to your ministries. If you have a people that you love and you teach them faithfully over the years, in the good times and the bad times, you teach them about the big issues. And you have a common, deep, profound understanding of God's sovereignty. And the place of suffering. And how God works all things together for good. Then when your right hand loving partner is laid low with cancer or hit by a car or has an awful marital problem. And you go in and you look him right in the eye. You don't have to say a word. Thousands of words are going back and forth. And you do the... Hug and you do the tears and you do the silence. Somebody once told me that Job's comforters, their their glory period was the first seven days because they didn't say a word. 
It's only when they open their mouths that they ruined everything. So sit with your people. Love your people. But don't leave undone the 15 or 18 years of teaching that fed into Patty's death. They were at my church 11 years. I didn't have to teach at the bedside. I didn't have to theologize at the bedside. We had theologized for 11 years, week in and week out, about the nature of God. And there, with your arm around Glenn and your hand on this ice-cold arm, you pray and you cry. Well, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come. It's been a little bit scattered, but... We have a passion for the supremacy of God. We have a passion for joy. We have a passion for holiness. And we now have a way of life called living by faith in future grace. Which means that we're going to walk into the future with our minds filled and overflowing with promises of what God will do for us and what God will be for us. And faith is a being satisfied in all that God will be for us. And so we get the help and he gives the help and he gets the glory. So the bottom line of it all is so live so that God gets the glory by your enjoying him through faith in future grace. Let's pray together. And now, Lord, as always, we look back over these couple of days together and realize that we are fallible and have in our hearts remaining corruption that needs to be yet mortified. And therefore, I am sure there have been imbalances or perhaps some ill-advised expressions or something that's been untrue. And my prayer is that you would protect these precious people from that and everything that has been true and faithful to your word would be sealed and the other would be forgotten, dropped away. And that the effect would be transformation into the image of Jesus for the good of our churches and the good of the nations and the glory of your name. We want to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of ourselves and all peoples everywhere. Lord, use it to that end. Just like we said earlier and Terry echoed Let the ripple effect of the dropping of this little pebble into the pond of NFI, let the ripple effect now be breathed upon by the wind of the Spirit so that the ripple becomes a wave and the wave a tidal wave and may it break and cascade repeatedly over our people's lives and over nations where the gospel is not yet known and you are not yet cherished and people do not yet have satisfaction in you. Lord, blow like that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.